What to Expect is a leading brand in pregnancy and parenting that, among other things, provides new and expecting parents a wealth of information to access. Now, according to What to Expect, here are some signs of an overtired baby. Babies who don't sleep enough and who stay awake for longer than they can handle end up having a stress response, an increase in adrenaline and cortisol, making it trickier for them to wind down for bed. Sometimes it's obvious your baby is overtired, and other times the signs are subtle. Here's what to look for in your little one. She has a hard time settling down for sleep. She only takes brief cat naps instead of full-blown naps. She doesn't get a lot of sleep at night. She's very cranky or fussy. She's less able to handle frustration or pain. She's more prone to meltdowns in an older baby. She falls asleep at random times during the day, in the high chair when eating, for instance, or as soon as she hits the stroller, even if it's not nap time. Now, those of you who are parents here have probably seen this in your kids, right? But I wonder how many of us, as we listen to that list, can identify ourselves. Hard time settling to sleep or don't get enough sleep at night? Check. Cranky or fussy? Check. Less able to handle frustration or pain? Check. Prone to meltdowns? If we're honest, check. <laughs> Falling asleep at random times, check. Babies who don't sleep enough and who stay awake for longer than they can handle end up having a stress response. Well, if that's the case, in some ways, grown-ups are kind of like big babies, right? <laughs> Tired is old news. We are downright exhausted. We live in a society plagued by restlessness, we want to do more, dream more, and be more, but we fail to recognize what it's truly costing us. But God knows. He's always known. And the word for you this morning is this. Rest is a gift from God for your own good, and you ignore it at your own risk. Again, that's rest is a gift from God for your own good, and you ignore it at your own risk. Our three points for today are that God knows you need rest, you know you need rest, and come and rest. See, this sermon is deeply personal to me because I am with you in this struggle. I'm preaching to my, myself first and foremost, so when I say you, please recognize I'm also preaching to my own soul. But I also want you to preach to your own souls too this morning. So there will be times when I will encourage you to repeat with me a statement out loud. In fact, here's the first one. Repeat after me, oh my soul, God knows you need rest. Oh my soul, God knows you need rest. Yes. Throughout our homesick series, we have been exploring the longings we all have and how these longings are meant to drive us back to God. Our need and longing for rest is no surprise to God. After all, He is the one who made us. So knowing that you need rest then, He created it. In Genesis 1, we have our origin story. 
the account of creation when God made all things. And we saw last week that the very act of creation was God's work. In six days, he structured and formed life as we know it. And then we read this in Genesis 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God rested. Those of us who are familiar with what the Bible has to teach us about God might find this statement unusual. God is all-powerful and doesn't get tired, so why did he rest? The verses we read tell us that he had finished his work of creation. So with his work done then, he looked at all that he had made on the sixth day and declared that it was very good. So with a job well done, by the way, that's the only way God works, all that was left for him was to enjoy what he had done. If you remember, we talked about how God in his work set a pattern for those made in his image to follow. So after six days of working, he stopped on the seventh day. Now, this was no mere coincidence. What we read in Genesis 2 makes it clear that the seventh day of the creation account, the day when God took a day off, so to speak, was a day different from the others. We are told in Genesis 2-3 that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, Because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. He blessed it. We have seen God pronounce his blessing on the living creatures he had made. But here we have God blessing the very day itself. And more than blessing it, we see that he made it holy. We might gloss over this word because we're used to reading it in the Bible. But do you realize that this is the first mention of holiness in the Bible, and it's given to a day. To be holy is to be set apart, to be marked for special use, and that special use is always directed to God. Here, God himself blesses a day and sets it apart. Why? We are told that God made it special because on it he rested. So from from the very beginning then, a day is set apart by God as special and blessed, a day of rest. As Adam and Eve followed after God's pattern of work, they would have also followed after God's pattern of rest. In creation, God decreed a moment in time to rest from labor. We know he surely didn't need it, but he knows that we surely do. But the Bible teaches us that not only did God create rest by decreeing the seventh day, he also commanded it. When a lot of us think about rest and the seventh day, our minds likely go to what is known as the Ten Commandments. You see, when God chose the people of Israel to be his people, they entered into what is called, as a, what is called a covenant an agreement between parties that creates a permanent relationship that is meant to be marked by faithfulness, obedience, and loyal love. So as God's people, they were given laws to follow, and the Ten Commandments are a kind of summary of the laws the people were given. The fourth commandment 
which also happens to be the most detailed commandment, talks about what is known as the Sabbath day. And we read in Exodus 20, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days Yahweh made the heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. See, the people were supposed to work, but that work was to be restrained by the Sabbath day, a day of rest modeled after the pattern of God's own work and rest. God didn't simply say to his people, it would be nice if you rested. No, he commanded them to rest. Look at what he says in Exodus 31. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to Yahweh. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Rest or die. God says. He knew rest was so important that he not only decreed it in creation, but then legalized it in his laws to his people. The penalty of not resting was death. This might sound extreme to some of us who can hardly put our phones down, but we need to realize that what was in view was more than simply not working. The Sabbath law introduced a moral aspect to how we use our time. Kevin DeYoung in his book, The Ten Commandments, helps us summarize the thought this way. He writes, these were the two twin engines of the Sabbath, worship and rest. The two were inextricably linked in the Old Testament. We rest so that we might be free to worship God, And we give God worship in part by trusting him enough to rest. Worship and rest are the appropriate responses to the portion of time God had set apart. The punishment was severe, but God was giving his people the gift of rest and communion with himself. For those who were just rescued from slavery in Egypt under forced work and false worship, this should have spelled life to them. Sandra Richter, in her book, The Epic of Eden, writes this. She says, Can you imagine what the gift of the Sabbath meant to the Israelites standing at the foot of Mount Sinai? A few months prior, they had been slaves. Slaves who had been born of slaves. Slaves whose only value was the quantity of labor they could produce before their backs gave way and their strengths failed. Slaves who, outside of a holy day or two, worked every day of their lives, from the tenderest days of their childhood until their broken bodies were laid in the ground. And now this God who has claimed them as his treasured possession is announcing that one day out of every seven will be set apart for rest. Now, there are many views on what the Sabbath day means today, 
particularly for Christians, but for now we can see that God has a time of dedicated rest and worship in mind for his people. He created a time for it in the beginning and even commanded it for the Israelites in the form of the Sabbath day. Friend, God knows you need rest, even if you try to deny it. No matter how much you fight it like a baby refusing to take a nap, the truth is that you know you need rest. So repeat after me, oh my soul, you know you need rest. Yes, you do. Do I even need to convince you about this point? Judith Shulevitz, an American journalist and culture critic, writes this about our Western society in her book, The Sabbath World. She says, there is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. Now, to be sure, hard work and ambition are not bad things by any means. And there are also seasons where our vocations, that's the callings God has placed in our lives, will demand more from us than normal. However, like we learned last week, we are not to abuse work by making it our idol and seeking our worth from what we do. We are to work hard at what we do without being defined by what we do. And part of that requires us to know when to stop. Pause for dramatic effect. <laughs> Justin Early writes in his book, The Common Rule, there are few deeper satisfactions than throwing yourself headlong into good work. In fact, the paradox of good work seems to be this. Anything worth doing requires bending your whole life toward it. On the other hand, nothing is worth bending your life until it breaks. This is true regardless of what you do. If you don't take a break, you will break. If you don't take a break, you will break. I have found this can be all the more true even in ministry. We hear of what is known as ministry burnout, where godly people who give and give and give and give and give until they have nothing left to give. Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, Crazy Busy, that busyness does not mean you are a faithful or fruitful Christian. It only means that you are busy just like everyone else. And like everyone else, your joy, your heart, and your soul are in danger. Friend, you know you need rest. You need rest for your body. We like to think we're like Bruce Willis in that movie, Unbreakable. But really, we're probably more like Mr. Glass, who gets hospitalized by the smallest nudge. The Bible is full of reminders that we are not as strong as we might think. For example, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 103 that he, God, knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. Dust, grass, 
and flower. These are the types of, the, of metaphors the Bible uses to describe our lives. We are pretty fragile, aren't we? Do you know the story of Pinocchio? It's a children's story about a wooden puppet named Pinocchio who dreams of one day becoming a real boy. This puppet's existential crisis is a good illustration for our society, isn't it? See, we live out the story of Pinocchio in reverse. He wants to be human. We want to shed our humanity. The sci-fi movie list of your Netflix, Crave TV, or local library speaks about this. Our bodies remind us of our limitations, so when we grow weak and tired and feel the natural longing for rest, rather than simply fulfilling our God-given need, we dream of a day when we could be free from its shackles. Sleep is seen as an interruption, and rest is like a bad word that gets in the way of more productivity. Friend, the authors of Gospel at Work have a word for you. They write, here's the thing, God knows your limits. He designed them. You can trust him when he says you need to rest. You may bear enormous responsibility in your work, but you need to recognize that it is actually God who prospers your work or declines to prosper it. God can grant success in surprising ways when we demonstrate our faith in him, even by not working. If God wanted to make us all solar-powered robots that didn't need sleep, he would have made us solar-powered robots, but he didn't. He made us as weak human beings formed from the dust of the ground and breathed life into us. And when we sacrifice rest unduly for the sake of more work, we show that we misunderstand what work is meant to be. Justin Early helps us again, and he draws the connection between work and rest and writes, This is why we live in a culture that can't accept Sabbath. We do not believe that work is from God and for our neighbor. Instead, we believe that work is from us and for us. We are trying to show that we matter, that the world wants us, that the world depends on us. But the truth is that the world isn't the dependent one. We are. The author of Ecclesiastes writes, a generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Friend, the world will keep on spinning after you're gone. God's idea, and he's a lot smarter than us, was for us to have six days of work an activity balanced with one day of rest. When we try to tip the scale by borrowing time of rest to do more work, we must remember that it is time that we must pay back. And like loans nowadays with crazy interest rates, the longer we take to pay it back, the more it will cost us. It could be in the form of stress, anxiety, fatigue, oversleeping, sickness, or injury, but sooner or later, we all pay up. So do you take care to rest in your weekly cycle? Or are you working on borrowed time, 
put enough the rest your body needs until you are forced to take a break. Remember, if you don't take a break, you will break. Nature tells you rest or die. But it's not only your body that needs rest. You also need rest for your soul. See, our bodies are driven by what our hearts and souls long for. So what we experience externally is typically first directed or felt internally. If I was to ask you what drives you to work yourself to exhaustion, or what keeps you from giving your body the rest it needs, what would you say? To care for the welfare of your family? or to progress in your career, or to uphold your reputation, to maintain a particular lifestyle, or because you just don't know any other way to live. See, rooting out the deep motives for why we do what we do is important because even if, even if you were somehow to get rest for your body, a rested body will still be weighed down by a restless heart. When we try to please others or find our identity in work or whatever else the motivation might be, we will wear ourselves out and yet always be craving more because our longing will never be satisfied. And of course, the deepest longing that drives us, whether we want to admit it or not, is our longing for God. See, we were made in his image and therefore made for relationship with him. And Augustine gets it right with his famous quote, you might have heard a thousand times, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. This is why God's Sabbath command was more than an absence of work. It was rest and worship, medicine for your body and life for your soul. But as we've been highlighting so far in this series, our longings have been affected by our sin. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God's judgment brought a curse. In Genesis 3.19, we read this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The mortality of our bodies was highlighted in the curse. But more than physical hardship and the breaking down of our physical bodies, our sin has also brought a separation from God. We read from Genesis 3.24 that God drove out the man, and, the, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to God the way to the tree of life. Man was separated from God, and the way back is out of reach. While before rest was something enjoyed as a gift in paradise, it became something necessary yet hard to obtain in a broken world with the now shut off Garden of Eden as a visual reminder. By the time we get to Genesis 5, mankind has become painfully aware for the need of true rest, and we read of one of Adam's descendants named Lamech who voices out his longing in the naming of his son. 
We read in Genesis 5.28 that when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that Yahweh has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Work is hard on our bodies. And the rest our soul needs in communion with our God and Creator has been broken. Friend, this is especially true for you if you are not a Christian. See, if you've recognized that you need rest for your body, but yet you ignore the rest for your soul, then know that you have been going on on borrowed time. And at some point, we all have to pay. When you live your life with no regard for your Creator, your sin and disobedience are like compounding interest. You cannot pay back what you owe yourself, and the rest you long for remains out of reach. On the day of judgment, if your soul has not found its rest in God, then it won't be able to enter its final rest then. All that remains is restless torment apart from God. But there's good news for you. Remember, rest is a gift from God for your own good, and you ignore it at your own risk. And this gift is being offered to you all this morning. So repeat after me, Oh, my soul, come and rest. Even from the Old Testament, it was clear that the rest God was calling his people to was something profound. Lamech's son Noah couldn't bring the rest they were longing for. And back then for the nation of Israel, the promised land was like a visual representation of the rest God has promised them, just like the Garden of Eden was a visual representation of the rest Adam and Eve had lost. Some failed to enter the promised land because they disobeyed God. But even those who did enter the land, the physical rest was never meant to be the ultimate point. The writer of the New Testament book, Hebrews, makes it clear that Joshua, the one who led the people into their physical rest in the promised land, could not lead them into the true rest that God had promised. The author says in Hebrews 4 that if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. See, that Joshua was unable to lead them to God's true rest. But there was another Joshua, whose name in English we came to know as Jesus, who leads all those who turn to him in faith to the true rest of God. He is able to do this because he is not only a man, but the Bible teaches us that he is God himself. Back in Genesis 2, God spoke his decree about the seventh day, and then he commanded it to his people, the Israelites. He could do this because he stood as Lord over the Sabbath he had created. And now enter Jesus, saying in Mark 2, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He proclaims that the Son of Man, the title he uses to refer to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. 
putting himself in the place where only God can stand. So what does this all mean for you? Well, this same Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of rest, gives you this invitation today from Matthew 11. You might know this passage. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He can offer you this rest because he paid the price for your sin and disobedience. For all the times you lived for yourself or made your work an idol or sought your ultimate refuge and rest in anything other than God, Jesus' death and resurrection secures access to the true rest your soul longs for. You don't have to work for it. And you could never earn it, but it is a gift from God paid by Jesus for all those who put their trust in him. Friend, repent of your sins and turn to him today. Because one day he is coming back to judge the world. And on that day, he will lead those who trust in him into a full and eternal rest and worship with God. So then, Mr. Preacher, you might say, I just have to believe in Jesus and wait for his return to enjoy the rest I need. But how about my life now? I need rest now. I am exhausted. Well, that's a good question. What can we learn about how we find rest in the here and now, even as we wait for our eternal rest with him? I would try and give some practical principles that I hope you'll find helpful. First, repeat after me, Oh, my soul, it's okay to rest. Oh, my soul, it's okay to rest. You need to free yourself from the lie that you can't rest. If you're like me, you almost feel guilty for resting. Don't buy it. If you have labored faithfully, then friend, you can faithfully rest. If God himself rested, and he has a way more important job than you do, then you can rest. If Jesus himself slept to regain his strength, and he did a lot more good than we ever could, then sleep must not be evil. It is okay to rest. Professor and Bible scholar D.A. Carson writes, Sometimes the godliest thing you can do in the universe is get a good night's sleep. Not pray all night, but sleep. I'm certainly not denying that there may be a place for praying all night. I'm merely insisting that in the normal course of things, spiritual discipline obligates you to get the sleep your body needs. As we already considered, there are seasons where rest might look different and your vocation might call you to do more than normal, but overall, we must remind ourselves that it's okay to rest. But that doesn't mean it's always easy to do it. Kevin DeYoung is helpful again here when he writes, we all know we need rest from work, But we don't realize we have to work hard just to rest. We have to plan for breaks. 
We have to schedule time to be unscheduled. That's the way life is for most of us. Scattered, frantic, boundaryless busyness comes naturally. The rhythms of work and rest require planning. So how can you proactively make sure you carve out time to rest? Is it actually scheduling your breaks or setting boundaries with your coworkers and devices or having people hold you accountable? This is something that you need to prayerfully think through. But ideally, we need regular rhythms of daily, weekly, and yearly breaks from work for refreshment. And I don't mean spending that time doing chores, unless you find chores restful. If you do, can you please come over to our house? Um, No, this is spending time on something you engage in, not because of its usefulness, but because you simply enjoy it. Next, repeat after me, oh my soul, know your limits. Know your limits. We can cultivate rest in our lives when we learn to know our limits. Don't stretch yourself until you break. Unrealistic expectations from others or even from yourself will drive you beyond what you can actually handle. See, unlike God, We grow faint and weary. You're not God. Know your limits. Another example of knowing your limit is to learn to live within your means. When we try to live above what we can realistically afford, whether it's that beautiful home with a high mortgage or your obsession for the latest gadgets that run up your credit card, then we are stuck overworking ourselves trying to pay for an unnecessary lifestyle. More than that, the Bible encourages us to actually live below our means. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 4, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands, listen, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Live below your means. That's a radical thought that not only frees us from bearing more financial burden that we can handle, but also enables us to help others. Okay, let's keep it going. Repeat after me. Oh, my soul, trust God. When God commanded the Israelites to rest on the seventh day and not to work, it required them to trust that even though they were not working, God would provide for them. It was a test of trust. Similarly, when we choose to rest after faithfully working, we remind ourselves that ultimately, we are not the ones who sustain ourselves. God does. So will you frantically work because you think that the burden of the whole world rests on your shoulders? Or will you in humility lay your burdens down and rest, choosing to trust God rather than your own efforts? Remember, we heard at the start of the service that he keeps those who trust in him, whose minds are stayed on him. Okay, here's the last one. Repeat after me. Oh, my soul, worship God. 
See, if worshipful rest was in view when God blessed the seventh day and set it apart, then we cannot consider rest apart from worship. Indeed, that was the view of the Israelites with the Sabbath day laws and the view of Christians who hold to a strict idea of what is called the Lord's Day. Now, I'm not here to tell you what you can and can't do on Sundays. Even though I believe that what Jesus has done has freed us from that way of thinking, but I can urge you to make worship, particularly corporate worship, a part of your regular rhythm of rest. Remember, you might schedule rest for your body, but you also need rest for your soul. A rest that no vacation or spa can give you. Only God supplies the kind of rest that is so deep. Time in God's word time in prayer, time in reflection of what he has done, these are ways you can abide in him and thereby find rest for your soul. Are the signs that you are overtired obvious to see? Or are they more subtle and waiting for a chance to explode from the inside? See, my weary friends, the truth of the matter is God knows you need rest. You know you need rest. Rest is a gift from God for your own good, and you ignore it at your own risk. You have fussed and fought your weariness long enough. Won't you come and rest? Let's pray.